What a treat it is to worship the living God every Sunday with the freedom we have and with a heart just fixed on the glory of Christ. I mean, there's nothing better than to come together as the people of God and just praise Jesus Christ and watch his spirit just envelop you in the great message of the gospel, in the love of Christ. And maybe you were here today discouraged and you started singing about Jesus and your disposition just totally changed. Amen? Who, who here is like that? Just, just a show of hands. That's, that was me this morning. So um, let's come before the Lord. Uh, actually, turn to Ephesians 6, and then we'll come before the Lord and pray for our time in the Word together. Ephesians chapter 6. Heavenly Father God, Lord, we do come before you thankful that you have provided us such a glorious saving treasure in Jesus Christ, Lord, that you sent your son into the world to rescue us, to take the wrath that we deserve on himself, Lord, that we rightly, or we're going to spend forever thanking you for your great love for us, that it wasn't that we loved you, but you first loved us, and you sent your son on a divine rescue mission to save us, to bear the wrath we deserve. We, we just thank you for that truth. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to worship together as a church here at Smithfield. And we pray, Father, that you would use us, Lord, that you would encourage us today. Father, wh wherever we've come in, I pray that we'd be getting strength from the Lord if we're believers, that we'd be strong in the Lord and in the power of your might, that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts to just receive and sit under and to be encouraged by the word of God. And Father, I pray that if if we're in here today and maybe we don't know you, that you would speak to us a better word than I've prepared, a word of Christ, a word that makes that resonates in the soul. And, and, and Lord, that you would lead people to yourself, for you are the only place where salvation comes and into a heart that may be totally fast bound by sin. We just pray that you'd be setting people free today in all sorts of ways. And we ask that your spirit would come now and blow upon our time. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been spending the past several weeks in the book of Ephesians, and most particularly in chapter 6, dealing with the armor of God, dealing with spiritual warfare. And I, I just want to remind us that this book was written by the Apostle Paul, right? He wrote a letter to the Ephesian church, to the church at Ephesus, a specific church in a specific place in a specific time, right? And Ephesus was a, a place not unlike our culture today, right? Ephesus was a place of great opposition to God. It was a place where the, the temple of Artemis, which was one of the biggest temples of the day, it was one of the seven wonders of the world in that time, and all sorts of gross pagan idolatry went on there. Ephesus was a place of sexual immorality. E Ephesus was a place of celebrating uh, an anti-God anti worldview, right? That's who Paul's writing to. He's writing to the Ephesians who were 
filled with all kinds of witchcraft and occultism and immorality. And he's writing to this little church who's in the middle of that, who, who these converts recently got saved. Many of them just got saved and weren't Christians for very long. And they find themselves in a world that is hostile to the very message of the cross, to the very message of the gospel, and desperately needy of this truth, right? And I was just thinking about that today, that this little church in Ephesus was up to its eyeballs in spiritual warfare, right? It was neck deep in all kinds of satanic stratagems that were going on in the culture around it, and probably needing a good word about spiritual warfare, right? It's not like Paul was like, hmm, I guess I'll talk about spiritual warfare. Like, they were in the midst of it. And we've been reminded, even this year, right? At the Grammy Awards, you had two performers that promoted the open worship of Satan and transgenderism and a defiance against the good designs of God right there on public TV, just like the celebration of it. So we're not far removed from this, right? Like we're, this is like Ephesus revisited in the world in which we live today. So I want us to get our hearts around this because the Apostle Paul is going to help us get at what must we do to face the spiritual battle that we are all immersed in. And much like the Ephesian church, we are smack dab in the middle of a culture that has an anti-God philosophy, that is hypersexualized, that is full of all kinds of darkness. And it doesn't take long for us to read the newspapers, the tabloids, all of that stuff, and just get thoroughly discouraged. And Paul is going to say, I want you to know the greatest things that you need to know about how to face these spiritual battles that you are in. And so we get to Ephesians 6 once again. And we're going to look at one more piece of armor today, the breastplate of righteousness. But I want us to take in the panorama of Ephesians 6 once again. Look at it with me at verse 10. This is the word of God. Finally. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm verse 14 stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness that's what we're going to talk about today and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. 
and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is God's word to us. And it couldn't be more relevant than for the day in which we live. It couldn't be more relevant for the spiritual warfare that you face in your families, in your place of employment. Paul just got done talking about marriage, family, and work, and how to live as a Christian. And then he talks about spiritual warfare. So do you think maybe some of those spheres of influence are where spiritual warfare plays out on a real everyday level? That's what Paul's trying to equip us for. And he tells us, after he says, foundationally to take up the, or fasten on the belt of truth, he says to put on the breastplate of righteousness. And you'll remember last week we talked about like the armor of God is, is envisioning, it has Old Testament roots, but it also is something that would be very, uh, familiar to Paul and to his readers because they saw Roman soldiers, Roman legionnaires who were walking around the streets all the time in full Roman attire. And so now he says, take up the breastplate of righteousness. And now the breastplate was a piece of armor that went on your chest that would protect your, your vitals. And it protected your chest and your back. And it was made of leather and then it had uh, metal rings, and, and, and it would have uh, all sorts of metal strips attached to it in order to guard the most vital organs of a human being. So you can imagine if you walked into battle and you did not have something guarding your abdomen and your chest and your thorax, you would be in trouble and you'd be made quick work of by the enemy's arrows or a sword thrust or a dagger in close combat. So Paul is helping us get at, with a physical picture of armor, what the breastplate is actually doing on a spiritual level, right? He's trying to help us get at this armor is what we need to protect the core of our hearts. What does the breastplate cover? But your heart, your chest, your lungs, your kidneys. And in scripture, all of those things represent the core, the inner life of a human being. Your heart is the organ you use to think and feel and will in the scriptures. And so Paul is saying that what you need to take up to protect your hearts in the evil day in which you live is the breastplate of righteousness. But we've got to ask ourselves right on the outset, what is the breastplate of righteousness? What is it? Is it, and, and there's two ways that commentators go on this. Some say that the breastplate of righteousness is just the inner righteousness of, of, of a person, a, the personal holiness of a Christian, the living right that you do in everyday life. And they'll say, well, Paul is dealing with the, the last part of the letter here. He's dealing with ethical concerns. And he's talked about in, in chapter 5 and verse 9 that we're to walk in the light. And, 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 and walking in the light looks like doing what is right. 
And so they'll say, this is actually how you guard yourself. you you got to live right in this world. And so many will look at that subjective, personal experience of living a holy life as the way to deal with the devil's devices. Now, I'm not convinced that that's the answer. Because I think if you review your own personal life, and if you think about your own personal experience, it will not take long for you to have a list, a categorical list of ways that you failed and you've fallen short. And what are the accusations and the arrows that the devil lobs at you, but the very failures that you have done in the Christian life. The very things you fell short in. The very ways that you spoke crosswords to your spouse. Or, or the ways in which you gossiped about a fellow believer. Or the ways in which you blew your top and you got angry over a situation or a circumstance. Or where you have gotten to the point where, where you feel like, I am so discouraged and so despondent, I must not even be a Christian anymore. How many of us know the struggle and the battle and the up and down realities of we don't always have this trajectory where we're just the birds are humming and the bees are buzzing and everything's going great we have a sordid track record and we all fall short in many ways and our obedience is imperfect so to take up that right as the thing that would guard us against the onslaught of the devil's arrows coming at us seems to me as a very shaky shifting sands of just how well you happen to be doing that day, right? That offers no help to you if you're struggling. That offers no help to you if a besetting sin has just seemed to overtake you and you feel kind of, I don't know what to do about it. And all the devil has to say, see, you can't deal with that. You're not a Christian. And that's exactly how the enemy works. Well, others who I think have rightly seen that this righteousness is the very righteousness that the Messiah takes up in Isaiah 59, 17, where he says he puts on the breastplate of righteousness. He puts on his righteousness as a breastplate. So Jesus himself took up righteousness as his breastplate, as the divine warrior. And that was the very thing that guarded him. And Jesus' righteousness is not shot through with sin. Jesus' righteousness is not spotty. Jesus' righteousness is not full of holes. Jesus is the sinless lamb of God. He's the savior of the world. He's the one who always delights in doing the will of the Father. He's perfect righteousness. And that is what I believe Paul is saying when he says, take up the breastplate of righteousness. Take up Christ's righteousness. That's what happened to you as a believer. And I often think, you know, if we were to put this in the world of Gotham for a moment, right? Batman goes into Gotham and he's going to wreak havoc on the underworld of, of crooked, corrupt 
criminals. And he's going to go at Joker. And if he goes in his little Bruce Wayne outfit or his T-shirt and he goes to battle and he doesn't have the bat suit and the Kevlar vest and all that stuff on, he's going in his own deal. He's going to get tore up. The Joker's going to laugh at him. But he gets suited up. He gets the Kevlar on. He gets the vest on. No soldier's going to go into battle without his armor on. Nobody's going to storm the streets of Fallujah and do uh, modern-day combat without a Kevlar vest. You better be sure. And that's what we do when we try to do it on our own steam. I will just be a little bit better. And how well I'm doing today is how secure I feel in the Christian life. Rather than what Paul lays up here and says to us very clearly in verse 14. He says, stand, therefore. If you want some textual indicators as to why I think this is the righteousness of Christ. Number one, he says, stand, therefore, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. It's something you're standing in. It's a standing. It's a position. It's a reality that's fixed. It's something that you're going to stand in. And all through Paul's writings, he's got the most to say about the righteousness that comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what his heart is all about. He wants you to be gripped by that. He wants you to be moved by that. Think about it. Romans 3.20 is just a perfect example of how Paul thinks through these things. For by... Works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, meaning God's sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For who? For who? all who believe. Oh, that, take, up the, take up the breastplate of righteousness, brothers and sisters. Take it up. It's not your own personal holiness. It's the righteousness of another. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. No amount of law-keeping will get you there. But, oh, it's been supplied. It's been given. And Paul takes great pains to instruct Christians that they don't stand in their own righteous deeds or law-keeping. He's writing to Christians. But they stand in the perfect righteousness of another. Or as that great Old Testament title of Messiah, the Lord is our righteousness. Jehovah said Kenu. The Lord is our righteousness. That's who we stand in. Romans 3.23 continues to say, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's all of us. And all are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. And that just means a wrath-bearing substitute to be received by faith. And why? This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins 
And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you know how God's holiness, the integrity of God's holiness and his right wrath towards our sin and his great love is expressed in salvation to us? God pours out his wrath and indignation on his son Jesus on a cross for you and I. So that in Christ, all our sins have been paid in full. Every last shred of the wrath of God has been absorbed for you and me. Because we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and he has paid it. And therefore God is just and the justifier. Of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. That's a glorious gospel standing. So when Paul says in Ephesians 6. Stand therefore having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Oh, that's what he's talking about. Is he just saying what the hymnist said so long ago. When he said my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. How I feel. But wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Oh, the hymnist knew what it meant to take up the breastplate of righteousness. And we studied Philippians a few years back. We studied Philippians and we came to some conclusions about how Paul viewed all of his past life, all of his religious performance, all of his good deeds, so quote unquote, as a Pharisee. And what does he say in Philippians 3, 7? But it gives us the heart of Paul. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. For his sake, I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That's a pile of dung. In order that I may gain Christ, not having a righteousness that is of my own, that comes from the law, but a righteousness... Or but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God that depends on faith. Saints of God, are you taking up that armor? Are you looking to the Lord, your righteousness? Are you donning every day? Donning and putting on this breastplate to guard the vitality of your heart as the devil tries to get at you. This is where you go. This is what the apostle lays out. This is what he reminds us of. This is what he's trying to tell you in a world like Ephesus and in a world like our own. You want to guard your heart? Take up the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So why does it matter? Why all this emphasis on the breastplate? Why, Peter, are you going to spend one whole sermon dealing with a half a verse? 
Well, the first thing and the first reason is because the Christian gets great confidence from taking up and understanding the breastplate of righteousness. We, we get confidence. We get steeled for the battle. We get encouraged. We, we're like a soldier getting armed up and equipped and getting ready to go out to battle. And you feel a little bit different when you know you've got something secure guarding your vitality and your organs, spiritually speaking. And we see it, right, in verse 13. It ends saying, stand firm. Take up the whole armor of God so that you what? Might stand firm. There's a confidence to the Christian who's equipped for battle. There's a confidence to the Christian who knows his position in Christ. Who knows just what his Lord has done for him or her. And we see it there in verse 15. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. That is our confidence. That's our courage. That's our deep conviction. Do you want to have a holy boldness? Do you want to have a lion-like courage? Do you want to have the kind of heart that's willing to go into this world and preach the word and the gospel of Jesus Christ and have those conversations with neighbors and families and friends? Take up the breastplate of righteousness and get help from this glorious, glorious doctrinal truth. What did Chad read earlier but Romans 8.31? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Right? If God's for you, if God has declared you righteous, who can be against you? Not even Satan himself can stand against you ultimately and finally. He may attack you, but he will not prevail in the end. Jesus wins, and everybody in Christ wins with him. As the hymn says, stand up, stand up for Jesus, you soldiers of the cross. Is that your confidence? Is that your strength in the heat of battle? When the going gets tough, where do you go to anchor your soul? And this is just what preachers have been saying of old, right? The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones reminded us that having the breastplate of righteousness is like, it's like gaining an unshakable confidence in the middle of the battle. An unshakable, unyielding tenacity. That comes from knowing you're in Christ. You're not looking at yourself. You're not looking at your performance. You're not looking at your own work. You're looking at him. And then you're strong. In the Lord. That great Scottish preacher. Robert Murray McShane. Used to say. For every look that you take at yourself. Take ten looks to Jesus. Take 10 looks to Jesus as the Lord, our righteousness, right? Take 10 looks at him. So much of our struggles come because we're looking at ourselves. Get your eyes off yourself and get it on Jesus. That's half the battle. In fact, that's probably the whole battle. There's a place for looking 
at the patterns of sin in your life and, and going after them one at a time, but never without looking to Jesus the whole time. Look at yourself and then look at Christ. And do it ten times for every look you take. That's glorious. That's what we see in the Bible. That's what Paul is saying when he says, take up the breastplate of righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1.30 makes the same exact point abundantly clear. And Paul says, and because of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, this is what Jesus becomes to us, the wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's like, it's like how many ways does Paul have to say it? Like, everything's in Jesus, Right? Now, I'm not trying to be simplistic and give that Sunday school answer, right? Jesus, 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 everything, right? But what I'm saying is, the Bible says, the source of all of our confidence, the source of our salvation, the source of our hope, the source of our tenacity in the fight, the source of our strength to fight sin, the source of our ability to stand in this evil day in which we live is Christ, our righteousness. And I ask you today, is that who you're looking to? When the going gets tough, when the rubber meets the road, when the battle is upon you, is Christ enough? And finally, I want to contemplate with you for a moment how the breastplate of righteousness silences the accuser. The breastplate of righteousness silences the accuser. We, we've seen that as we looked at verse 11 of Ephesians 6, where it says, put on the whole armor of God, that what? That you may stand against the schemes of the devil. So you know the accuser of the brethren has schemes to attack you. And we're reminded of the Apostle John's words in the book of Revelation, where he points out the same thing in Revelation 12, 9. He says of the devil, and the great dragon was thrown down. The serpent, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. And then listen to this, verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down. Who accuses them day and night before our God. Make no mistake about it. The devil's main business and chief weapon against you is accusation. Right at the heart. Darts flying all over the place. And we have said before, he knows exactly where to aim. He's going to go where you're most vulnerable. I'm reminded of the first, the original 2001 Spider-Man, uh, the Tobey Maguire one, right? And uh, that was one of my favorite ones because the Green Goblin just seems like the, the most, one of the most sinister bad guys. And the Green, Green Goblin was a man... Uh, named Norman 
Osman and Osborne. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's right. <laughs> Norman Osborne. And Norman Osborne was kind of like he, he went crazy, basically, and he got schizophrenic. And so there's this scene where the evil side of him is talking to the side of him that's trying to cling to do what's good. And he's finally discovered the identity of Spider-Man. And the evil Norman Osborne, right, Osborne, uh, the, the evil version says, what you've got to do is go for the heart. That's where he's weakest. Go for his heart. Attack what he cares about. Attack him where he's most vulnerable. Oh, and that's how Satan accuses you. Where are you most vulnerable to the fiery darts of accusation? Where are you most susceptible? What are the ways that the devil's encroaching into your life? Have you observed it? Have you seen patterns? Have you seen things happening in your life where you're sort of experiencing these attacks one by one and you're starting to realize that there's something deeper going on? There's something more sinister afoot at why you feel the way you do. The devil loves to play mind games with accusing thoughts, accusing feelings, and get you to run with it, right? He's going to take that record and he's going to spin it every which way. So you just keep listening to the same thing again and again. He's going to run that tape or play that live stream again and again and again and again to get you down. And maybe you're there. And maybe you've wondered, like, what do I do in the face of the enemy's accusations that he's throwing at me like a volley of arrows to silence my accuser. Well, one of the things I was thinking this week as I was reading the word was, you got to get your heart in Romans 8. If you want to understand the breastplate of righteousness, you need to understand Romans 8, right? Romans 8 begins, Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Throw that up in the devil's face when those accusing thoughts come, right? If you're in Christ you can say that. There's nothing that can condemn you at the end of the day. There's no condemnation left over because Jesus paid it all. He smothered every last flaming arrow that comes your way. And when you're gripped with that truth, all of them fall to the ground. And that's what you can say when the fiery darts are coming at you. Or as we saw, you keep going, you get to the end of Romans 8, and it's Romans 8.31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not spare his own son? But what did he do? He gave him up for us all. How will he not graciously give us with him everything that we need? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That's an accusation. It is God who justifies. If God has declared you not guilty then there's nothing the devil can throw at you to make stick because Jesus paid it all. Sure, you want to make daily, make things daily right relationally with the Lord when you fall short, but no condemnation is left over. Who shall condemn? Verse 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, he was raised 
who is at the right hand of God and who is indeed interceding for us. So it's like God is telling you, you have the most glorious advocate. You have a Savior who's perfectly righteous, who's giving you that to your spiritual bank account when you trusted in Him. And He ever lives to make intercession for you. He's going to bat every time those, those accusations come. And you remember uh, Revelation 12 says that the devil is up there just lobbing accusations and he's throwing them towards God. Like, do you see him? Did you see her? Did you see what they said over the dinner table? Did you see what they said on that phone call? Did you see how they text is? Did you see that Facebook post? Right? I mean, some of us need to repent, right? Where we've fallen short in those areas. But please know, don't let those things haunt you forever because you have one who ever lives to make intercession for you. And so you can say, get out of my face with that. There's one who's made satisfaction for me. That's the answer to the devil's accusations. But I want to spend a few moments here to dial this in further because I know many of us maybe struggle with particular accusations that the devil's been saying to you for so long and you're in bondage to them. You're believing them. You're overwhelmed by them and you haven't, you haven't worked it out. So let's look at some of these things as we close that I hope one of them sets you free. I hope one of them is like, oh, I needed that. That was from the spirit of God like a laser to my heart. So accusation number one that the devil might throw at you is something like this. You are far too dirty and too defiled to come to God. How can you, how can you approach God with a history like you, yours? How can you approach God with the things you've done in your past? There's no way to approach him. You better just give up. Don't even go to him. He doesn't want to hear it. That's how the devil comes at you. Don't bother repenting. What's going on there? The darts of accusation are coming and they're lodging in your heart. And you need to remember what to do with accusing thoughts. You've got to take those thoughts and you've got to put your trust wholly on Jesus alone. Right? You've got to take those thoughts and remember what's true about your relationship with Jesus. How you got saved is the same way that you continue to press on in the Christian life. Ephesians 2.8 says as much to us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. Or what does Romans 5, 1 say? But therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. You've got to believe God, not the devil. You've got to believe his promises, not Satan's lies. The devil loves to trap you in thinking you're too dirty. But there's no one beyond God's reach. Accusation number two. Perhaps the devil's saying this one to you. Well, surely a real Christian would not struggle in this way. In the way that you're struggling... In the way that you're failing, surely a Christian would not 
struggle with this particular sin. You won't have any measure of victory over this, so don't, don't, don't bother with that one. Have you had that happen in your heart before? That's the accusations of the evil one. And we've got to remember what 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, right? There is no temptation that's overtaken us except that is common to man. So it's the opposite of what the devil's saying to you. All temptation's common to men. But God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he'll provide a way of escape that you might be able to endure it. So in Christ, there is always a way to overcome sin. There's always a way to overcome particular sin. This side of heaven, we will struggle with sin, but let no one tell you the satanic lie that you can never overcome a particular sin if it's blood-bought and it's paid for and Jesus paid it all. Then the very power that holds you in bondage or used to when you were an unbeliever has been broken. That's not the, the promise of an, for an unbeliever. It's the promise to a Christian. The power of canceled sin gives you encouragement to face temptations and to know you're not alone. You're not alone in those struggles. And God is faithful. Take up the breastplate of righteousness. We'll just do a few more. Maybe you've heard this accusation in your soul just ringing around in your heart and the devil saying to you God will never forgive that sin he will never forgive it it's not it's too vile and it's too ugly and it's too soul damning it's unpardonable it's 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 you, you you've blasted a lot of people will come and tell me I, I think I might have blasphemed the Holy Spirit Right? That's attributing the work of Christ to the work of Satan. It's something the Pharisees did. They said he was doing all these miracles in the power of Satan. Right? And everybody who thinks they've done that has never done that. Right? If you're worried about it, you've probably never done it. If you have done it, you, like, there's no desire for you to follow Christ. You're pursuing that path. You've went beyond the point of no return. And, and, and those people never have any conviction around their sin. They never have any conviction around what they're doing. They never have that haunting specter of guilt over their life. And if you're there and you feel like you're in the black hole and there's no hope, then you need to come to Christ right now. Do not delay. Do not stay in the rabbit hole of, in the quagmire of your sin. But here, 1 John 1, 9, to you, that's a great antidote for those who feel like they're being swallowed up by sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the word of God. If you confess and agree with God and you bring your sin to him, he's faithful and just. To cleanse you and to forgive you of all unrighteousness. Why can he do that? Well, we go on and it says, if we have, say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. But listen, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And what does it say? Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
Beloved, do you see how it comes full circle? When you confess your sin to God, when you bring your broken heart to God, when you bring your moral failures to God, when you take your righteousness to God, your spotty righteousness, He cleanses you of all your sin. He cleanses you of all the guilty stains. He cleanses you of all that. Why? Because Jesus is your righteous advocate. He's the one who paid it in full. He's the hope for you. And perhaps you have forgotten that very reality today. You thought, not me. Might be true of my neighbor, but not me. And this is the word of God to you. God can deal with your sin. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son up to a cross. That whoever believes on him shouldn't perish. Perish in the guilt and damnation of their sin. But instead have everlasting life. And that life is a life that's meant to be lived out, taking up the breastplate of righteousness. Now we were talking about Batman earlier. And there's this scene in one of the Christopher Nolan Batmans where... Uh, you have Batman and Catwoman and, you know, the, the world of Gotham is a sick, twisted, dark world. And Batman seems to be overmatched for all the evil that's out there. And even Catwoman, you know, is this woman who has a dark past. And all through the movie, she's looking for something called the clean slate. She's looking for something that can erase her past. She's looking for a new start. She's looking for something that will justify her. She's looking for something that will take her from this place where she's just in bondage. The law is on her back. She's guilty. She has no hope. And she wants a fresh start. Brothers and sisters, that's what justification by faith is. It's far greater. It, it's far greater. It's a clean slate. All your past sin forgiven. All your present sin forgiven. All your future sin forgiven at the cross. For he became sin who knew no sin. So that in him you might become the righteousness of God. That is a clean slate slate before God that is a clean bill of goods before heaven do you long for it and if you're a Christian lay hold of it let's pray father we come before you now and we recognize that nothing in the hand this hand I bring simply to the cross I cling that's how we have to come to you and father I pray uh, wherever we're at that you would speak to us, uh, 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 that you would remind us that there is forgiveness that is offered at the cross. It's a forgiveness that's perfect. It's a forgiveness that's life-giving. It's a forgiveness that's filled with hope. And there's hope for us who feel condemned in this world, who feel condemned under the stranglehold of the law, if we will but reach up 
and grab a hold of Christ by faith. If we will forsake sin and self and put our trust wholly on Jesus' name. Oh, Lord, you'll come in and you'll make us new people. And, Father, I pray that as we are challenged today to be taking up the breastplate of righteousness as believers so we can stand in this evil day, I pray, oh, God, that you would help us to stand strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. In Jesus' name, amen.